Hello and welcome to the Negroni Talks podcast, brought to you from East London and supported by Campari. Set up to be lively, provocative debates on issues around architecture, the Negroni Talks are hosted at the Venetian Restaurant Ombre in Hackney and organised by Architects Fourth Space with the assistance of Rob Fain and Bobby Jewell. The talks are designed to emulate the opinionated and convivial free-flowing debates found in the fin de siècle European Café Society, being fuelled by food, drink and particularly Negroni. There's no stage, no standing on ceremony and the audience are asked to participate as much as invited speakers and the chair for the event. These recordings are presented as they happen live and like the talks themselves with no frills and little or no editing to bring you the arguments of the evening direct and unfiltered. Due to the coronavirus lockdown and the temporary closure of Ombra, this talk was hosted as an online event via Zoom so that we could continue the Negroni talk series as planned. Hello, welcome, welcome, welcome along to this, which is the fourth Negroni talk on Zoom, I believe, uh, rather than in lovely Ombra. It would have been delightful to be in Ombra on an evening like this, but anyway, we do what we can. So yes, I am Alfred Pani. I will be chairing the event this evening. I am an architect. I currently work in the design and conservation team at uh, Waltham Forest Council. If your email is urgent, I will respond in three to six weeks. Um, this, yeah, as Hugh's mentioned, this is the second in a series of talks as part of the London Festival of Architecture on the theme of power. That's right, power. And we are going to be talking specifically about money, money and power, architecture and economics. So uh, by way of introduction, I thought about singing the chorus to Simply Red's Money's Too Tight to Mention, which, as you all know, goes um, talking about money, money, talking about money, money, talking about dollar. But my voice is not really up to it this evening, so I'm sorry about that. And anyway, this isn't really about me. I'm just here to marshal the comments from our very impressive panel, so who I'm going to ask to introduce themselves right now. Introduce themselves with incredible brevity. So in no significant order, let's have Julia first. Thanks for that, Alpha. I really want to hear you sing, just to put that out there. Um, maybe best described as the kind of lost architect um, to be found in the corridors of the sociology department at the London School of Economics, sometimes talking about poos, sometimes talking about cities, uh, radical feminist. <laughs> Thank you. So, uh, Simon, please. Um, hi, Simon Alford, um, architect, occasional teacher. I'm here to, to talk about the filthy lucre and the thing that all architects talk to me about, but don't like to talk about. Yes, thank you. Uh, we look forward to that. So thank you, Jack, if you could introduce yourself. Uh, I'm an architect. I run uh, the Real Foundation and mm, am editor-in-chief of Real Review magazine. Um, my, I'm fascinated by power and I'm fascinated by money and I'm particularly uh, interested in how we can look through the lens of intersectional feminism as a way to create more equal uh, domestic spaces and look at power relations within the home as a way to create more equal societies. Sounds good. Uh, and finally, David, if you could introduce yourself, please. Hi, uh, I'm David Okumuiwa. I am an architect. I run a practice called Architecture Doing Place. Um, I lecture at um, Portsmouth University at the moment, but I've done at Central St. Martins and the Stephen Lawrence Trust. 
and I do a bunch of advisory roles, including being a mayor's design advocate. Great. Thank you very much, David. Okay, well, I'm looking forward to some spirited debate between you all on the topic of power and money. A few practical points. So everyone out there is welcome to suggest questions for the panel. You can paste them via the chat box and I'll try and keep an eye on that and um, pick some questions as we go along. Panelists, if you have a burning comment to make while someone is speaking, you can wave to me like so. If you agree with something that's been said, you can use the clapping and thumbs up emojis in Zoom, which are under the reactions tab on the toolbar. You can also do this with your hand, quite amazing. If you agree, you can also nod like this. If you disagree, you can do that or that. That's a good one, uh, which is all very straightforward. So. Um, it would also be wonderful if everyone could try and keep their comments as concise as possible so we can have a lively and free flowing conversation. And because of course, this is no small topic. Uh, there are a number of directions we could take. Some of the avenues include profit margins, viability, fee calculators, pay transparency, the cost of land. Uh, London is the inevitable nexus of money and architecture, the cost of running a practice, the efficiencies of using BIM balanced against the boxy form making, the price of materials versus the cost of labor, whether you need money to break into the industry and get built projects, uh, projects built rather, uh, and whether it helps if you look like your clients and investors. I could go on. So, and as well as any of the problems highlighted, how are we going to fix all this? If you have any suggestions, please be forthcoming. There is plenty of ground to cover. So I'm going to kick off with a question of my own, which touches um, more or less, actually just says what Simon was just saying earlier. Are, Architects squeamish when it comes to talking about money. Who would like to take that? Uh, yeah, I, I have something to say about that actually, mm -hmm. um, which is it's always kind of surprised me that architects aren't more forthcoming about um, money. I, I would agree with that point. Uh, I think it's strange because may, uh, hopefully I'm talking to a sympathetic audience here, but I, I think architects are basically the most sophisticated designers that exist in the design sphere of professions. And we get asked to do, to be critical and imaginative about so many things, about historical context, about cultural context, environmental performance, material performance, uh, various types of engineering questions, public policy, planning regulation, building regulations of different kinds. And, and then in addition to that, like clients' desires and their visions for their own kind of ideas and within all of that, we, we seem to feel like we have the ability to speak on those subjects and to make a kind of positive contribution. But when it comes to the what now Reva is calling stage zero, making the business case, understanding the financial model of the project and beginning to uh, you know, talk about that, we all seem to be very kind of shy to get involved with it. And I don't know if any of you are, well, some of, I can know from the audience, some of you are developers and uh, some of you will have uh, worked with developers Development isn't rocket science, actually, in its basic, you know, the, the knowledge that you need in order to understand those financial models is, is, not, uh, is not arcane or any more complex than what we deal with in architecture, well, yet yeah, for some reason. Yeah. Developers removed. find it very easy to uh, talk about profit margins very uh, easily upfront. So why are architects so squeamish, Julia? Um, I'm not going to answer why architects are so squeamish, but I okay. think we need to come in and be more precise with the term money. Um, and I think perhaps there is to, to be kind of basic about it. Are we talking about there's good money and then there's bad money? And I think, um, you know, bad money in my, in, in my understanding of it is linked to the kind of hyper financialization of said development. Um, you know, the idea that there's good development and bad development. 
and it, and I also think it's um, the kind of bad money and bad development is inextricably tied to kind of um, the ways in which um, the state, for example, has uh, you know divested from welfare policies and kind of large scale public sector projects and employment and prioritized, let's say, real estate um, land. And the end result of that that we see today is sort of really discriminatory planning processes and you know, huge amounts of sort of socio spatial economic segregation. And that's the kind of result of bad money. Um, and so I do think, yes, yeah, kind of a call for precision here in terms of what we're talking about. So which one is uh, architects better versed in good money or bad money or is that the problem? <laughs> I, I think I, I would agree with Jack. I'm sort of quite optimistic about the practice. I think we're really good at both. Um, I think uh, I love hating the bad money architectural stuff, um, but I think there's plenty of cases of architects working with good money. Um, can can I this, ask you a question, yeah. Julia? Should we engage with bad money? And if so, how? Um, I think this is the kind of perennial problem, isn't it? I mean, my, my personal opinion is um, I don't think an, an intellectual commitment to a problem is good enough anymore. Mm. Um, and I think then that forces your hand to have to engage with bad money. Mm. Um, that involves compromise. And I think it's that kind of, uh, yeah, it's a, a fine line. And I kind of, I've been working recently with, um, Akil from Resolve, and we've been talking a lot about this and sort of thinking about how like Trojan horse design and this idea of trying to sort of change the system from within. Uh, but equally, I have moments when I'm, I sort of think, are we just propping up something that's inherently structurally completely fucked up? Mm. Um, and, and I guess a starting point is acknowledging that and being frank and honest about it. Um, but that's my, my personal opinion is that, yeah, you have to engage to change. Oprah, can I step in now? Was, yeah, I just, I'd, I'd like to challenge the position of good money and bad money. Um, to me, for instance, in, in the brave new world post-war, I presume that was good money that was poured in by a very powerful government with a, with a nationalized profession who um, didn't bother with consultation. They just built the brave new world that they knew about with tremendous social commitment. So it was good money. Um, good architects making the kind of appalling socioeconomic space which you're upset about. So I, I, I would challenge the idea that, that, that the money is good or bad. I think the um, models of how you deal with money, you can be definitely be creative and imaginative about, but good money and good ambition does not make good cities. You can get plenty of disasters when architects get together, get in a position of power and think they know what's right for the world. Okay, so, so, it's yeah. About, yeah. so it's about the motive. So is, if it's a profit motive or not, but also where it's not just a profit motive, you don't necessarily have a good outcome. It, well, there's absolutely terrible assumption that just because there's a good motive will lead to good design. I mean, yeah. you know, it, it, it's yeah, yeah. complete none doesn't follow to me in any way, shape or form. The point is, you know, I, I, I grew up, you know, my father's now said in a world of people who were hoping and that tried to build a brave new world and now, if you looked at what they did, they went into parts of this city and other cities and just cleared wholesale estates because they knew what was right. They had the money, they had the power, and they had a kind of, you know, total state control in a way. And they produced, despite their passion and their tremendous commitment, they produced some disastrous settlements. 
So, you know, I, I, you know, I, I therefore worry about good and bad money. As but a, isn't as that when, yeah, when power and money intersect? So when you have good money intersecting with bad power, it results in the kinds of things that you're talking about. And I think that we, you know, we can see with, I mean, you know, Greg Okay, Robert so just it. taking that on, what if I had, what if I had bad money and, and, and no power as an architect, but actually you were managing to produce some long-term urban value in, in designing residences, which will be used by future generations in financial models we're not yet clear about. You know, because at the moment we have models like staircasing up, intermediate shared ownership, which sort of, you know, release um, affordable housing in a very kind of beneficial way, but then immediately that becomes part of the market is lost. So it's yeah. good intention, but you could criticize it as a bad model. Yeah, I'm going to bring David in at this point and see if he has anything to add right now. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I, I kind of violently agree with everyone in a, in a strange way. Um, and I think, um, because for me, I think uh, the uh, original question that you posed about um, how architects feel about money is actually really, really relative. It's a question about manners. Um, and that is as indicative of the kind of cultural context of architects as it is about money. Um, and then talking about money um, separately in, in its relationship to power, um, you might easily, or I might easily frame it because of the way my mind works about um, the difference between good politics and bad politics and what you do with it and what outcome you're trying to get. Because um, I think um, fundamentally for me, particularly um, over the last, I'm going to say, um, uh, 15 years, so including the um, financial crash, Money is um, about identity as much as it's about anything else. Your access to it, your um, intersections with it, the way it affects you, um, the way it defines everybody. I mean, I, I don't think that's uh, kind of in dispute. Uh, one of the things I'm really interested in about this talk is uh, kind of bureaucratic money and a bureaucratic relationship with money and how people talk about money. So for instance, um, I know we're not on board this evening, but um, let me talk about the London Borough of Hackney, which is a left-leaning, safe, um, borough, um, and I'm a, and I'm an old lefty, so I'm I'm kind of um, I'm saying this from a position of um, uh, critique and actually a bit of sorrow often as well. Um, they spend three hundred million pounds every year on goods and services, um, but the London Borough of Hackney, many of you will be surprised to hear, haven't appointed anybody that looks like Stephen Lawrence to design as much as this park bench in the last twenty years. Um, on Stephen Lawrence Day, they'll do loads of commons events, which will cost money to talk to kind of support their kind of to cheerlead about Stephen Lawrence. And it's just about those kind of two um, difficult, uh, actually kind of contradictory approaches to power, money and politics um, and people's identities, frankly. Yeah. Are, um, yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. So I think That's it is an interesting question. point about who commissions projects as well and have the power, which actually comes back to your point, Simon, about post-war rebuilding that slightly paternalistic kind of uh view you know okay there's a utopian ideal but the idea of a small group of people having this much power to remake cities i mean arguably the people commissioning projects are also a kind of narrow group of people at this point so there is a there is an issue about who gets to commission projects as well so is there anything anyone would like to say mm. about that uh, I'm a bit kind of confused at the direction that the conversation has gone. I want to go back maybe one or two steps and especially go back to what David was saying, which I, which I really very powerfully agree with. And actually, uh, the first thing is, 
the, the opening question was about whether or not we're squeamish. And I think uh, maybe with the exception of the Finns and the Japanese, I've never met another nation outside or group of nations outside the British who are more awkward around questions of, of money. So I think that first question is just about financial literacy. And I think there's a comment in the chat from uh, Roger Sigolovich, which I think is a very good one, which is not to moralize money. I mean, at least for me, money, let's just say, you know, it's like mathematics. I don't think it's necessarily a good or a bad thing. But the question is that architects, I don't think, are financially literate enough. We don't understand enough about money and we can't have enough of a say in uh, projects at that level. Yeah. And the other point is Sorry, to I was just going to say, is, it, oh, is, yeah. that, is that dependent on which architects you speak to and their backgrounds, actually? Because in my experience, yeah. there are plenty of architects that are very happy to talk about money. They're that's, just not necessarily... Well, I wonder... Uh, if that's true. Sorry, maybe I could just very rapidly come back to that other point, which is I, I think that your point about power is really the, the really important one, actually. And, and it's the way in which money is, is just a type of power. Who has the money is, is, a, is a form of power exchange and a form of instrument, instrumentalizing their own agency. And in that sense, I mean, what I am very passionate about is architects having greater financial literacy, not just so they can talk about these things, but so that they can start to understand money as a form of power that they also can uh, actively uh, use as part of their own agency. Yeah, I think that, that point about architects being literate about money, that's a good one. I mean, David, obviously you said plenty of architects are. What I was wondering in terms of that question is whether architects are sort of willfully kind of ignorant when it comes to talking about money, whether, whether there's a kind of sense that that's, you know, we're, we're kind of interested in the arts and form making and that's a bit grubby to talk about money you know that's for the developers and so on I mean that's sometimes perception that I get I don't know if anyone would agree with that I, I think that is again it's about manners so let me give you a, a reverse scenario about this this whole um, conversation about money um, there are plenty of um, students who want to go to who are doing A levels and want to go to university and study architecture and their entire obsession is about how they're going to pay for it that's you know that that's just their entire frame and their lens mm -hmm. so the 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 almost uh, i'd rather not use this word so quickly but the privilege of being able to to be kind of um i don't know to not necessarily address uh, money directly um head on and to discuss it all the time is is frankly that it's a privilege but having said that i know lots of practices that even are privileged but in order to keep a practice running uh, to keep a practice going, to, keep, to make a practice um, endure, you should pretty much understand something about money. There are practices, obviously, who are, who are founded by people who are independently wealthy and they don't necessarily need to think about that. But quite a lot of practices um, do need to have some kind of attitude towards money that is conscious and intentional. Um, and they do, in my experience. Well, Julia, you talked about working with Resolve, who are kind of collective. And I guess they are conscious in the way that they approach money, but in a different way to arch the traditional architecture setup might be. So I guess what I'm saying is, is like another way of thinking consciously about money in practice. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm definitely sort of the, the, the person with the, uh, I have no experience of running a practice and, and shouldn't speak to that. Um, and in a way, I kind of, I've just been listening because I guess I'm just not that interested in, um, I'm very interested in, for example, that students won't study architecture because they don't have the privilege of money. I'm very interested in the way that money lands disproportionately in the hands of certain people. And I guess for me, 
I just see architecture as very complicit in a way of city making that results in, in, in a really in an uneven distribution of money and what money can buy. And that's what I'm interested in. Um, I haven't answered the question about resolve. Um, but I think the thing is, is that a practice like resolve from, which again, I shouldn't speak to them about their practices either, but I guess in how I work with the kill is that we're interested then in thinking about how those who are marginalized and not often included in conversations. I mean, Simon talked about sort of participation into the built environment. And so those who are sort of not part of that, which I think is linked to not having money, we're interested in working with those people. Um, I feel that that is a marginal practice in architecture mm. and so ergo there's my beef with architecture. Mm. I don't I know if I'm correct Maybe I could with jump that. in because I've been practicing for, for a while and picking up David's point, one of the problems with architects is if you don't face up to money and you don't make money, you make it a deeply unattractive for profession for anyone who hasn't got money. So if you're struggling and thinking about studying architecture, you'll get put off by the cost and the duration and the poor prospects of earnings and architects who will talk a lot about money and social practice and then cross subsidize it with the Erasmus students earning nothing. Mm -hmm. and until, unless we respect ourselves and value design and what we bring, uh, whether it's a private or a public sector um, project, it is a financial model that is created. People move seamlessly from one sector to another. And if you want to represent people, um, I think it's difficult to say you can represent them because you're, you're not them. Um, so you can consult with people. But the fundamental problem of, our, of architects is every architect, you know, we actually have a secret conversation. Or we can tend to have a secret conversation with ourselves about the things we're really interested in, which is why I think as a profession, we can drift towards the um, kind of high-end uh, decorator projects of kind of art galleries and private houses, which will endlessly say are a prototype for a better world. And then that the real other better world is being by built by people who aren't architects. And we've often not built the world and we're not necessarily the only people who can build the world. And that's why I don't defend, um, the, you know, I don't think you protect the title architect or the activity, frankly. If you're good enough to do it, you're good enough to do it. But I think, yeah, that there is a, a real issue around the profession, which is, Everything we do is involving a financial transaction. The good and bad money is confusing. The, it's the attitude you have and what you bring as a designer and getting control of money to understand how buildings are procured and how you can Im involve design in that procurement to bring about a better end. So if you're designing affordable housing, how do you rethink the model of financing it and paying for it to allow for it to look at a longer term cost model cost benefits over time or carbon or whatever it might be. So these are all fundamentals. If we don't get to grips with, we will become the marginalized decorators and others will come in with perhaps less skill than us, um, but more aptitude to present a financial model. So I think it's a double, it's, a, it's two, two challenges to profession. One is to reckon, recognize that building is a commercial and financial co construct which we, which we get involved in designing the material output of, and that we, unless we have private incomes, are individuals who would like to generally improve their quality of life and move to a slightly better 
set of accommodation or have a better diet or whatever it might be or better education whatever it might be and unless we get to grips with money as a profession we become a fringe activity for those who are privileged enough to be architects and that's the big problem is the point can i uh, interject a little bit and say that is this the, the issue with this that there's no component of education that really deals seriously with the finance of architecture i mean you can go through five years of study at uh, degree and diploma and I mean, I certainly had no, um, I mean, I might be speaking in an isolated case, but I, I had no component of my teaching was had any financial bearing at all, getting to grips with the world as it was as a financial, and to respond to you, Simon, to understand architecture in the terms you're describing them. And if you're not, if you're coming into the real world with loads of ideas, you've been sort of, you're looking at architecture in quite the wrong way, actually. I think you need, look, I think that architecture is a many faceted thing and you need to have humanity you need to understand you know people as much as you can you've got to recognize that whoever you're designing a building for is going to change over time um i i think the a, a fundamental is is accepting that design is contingent upon sets of um regulations rules and materials it's like set, look at the eameses they reinvented you know furniture and product design looking at what were originally affordable models because they got interested in how things were procured and modern technologies materials and how they could adapt them to you know ideally to provide affordable housing prove was the same and yet ironically patrick seguin now sells his affordable chairs for three thousand pounds um you know as replicas and fifty thousand pounds if they're new so there's the value of design as a cultural icon going back to your last conversation but there is actually an idea that it's it is absolutely fundamental and architects who don't do it end up repeating the myth which i think comes from a post-war model where most good architects worked in public practice 90 percent of the profession 10 percent worked in private practice and they were either big name architects who were given gifts of commissions by city architects or they were what were known as commercial architects. Well, to me, every architect is commercial or they won't make a living. They won't survive. They can't pay for, they can't put you know, food on the table. And that's a kind of fundamental condition that we, we, we've been, we're encouraged to ignore. Can I just uh, flow, because uh, it's really interesting, Hugh, when you um, talk about um, what you were taught. So obviously I teach at the moment. And can I just, I want to ask the other panelists whether we are being a bit parochial on the one hand um, about architects specific relationship to money when actually it's a cultural um, issue. Um, economists um, talk about money as a utility. It's an instrument. It's a, it's a tool. Um, you can use it this way. You can use it that way. It's entirely up to the person who's wielding the instrument. Um, and um, I think I'm, I'm right in saying that from um, if anyone's come across uh, Thomas Piketty's um, Capital in 21st Century. Um, really heavy book. Use the audio book. It's, it's easier. Uh, but it, it's kind of it's really interesting in the in the way that people have used both um, their conception of money, how money is used, how markets are used, how people relate to each other socially. And I think that's what's one of the things that um, I took from what Julia was saying is that actually it's about um, these different structures and relationships and how we relate to the world. I don't have a problem with some people being stone cold capitalists. That's fine. Everyone is not everyone is, and lots of other people are the uh, and the other uh, on the end of it, uh, the other kind of extreme of that spectrum. Um, I don't have an issue with that. I suppose part of my issue is this kind of um, 
and I think this does come back to the kind of cultural framing of this, is a, is a kind of floating of, of architecture um, as a as a kind of uh, as a kind of dilettante activity where you know we can we can wander through it and we don't need to really um, focus on money. I think that's that's a myth. It's not true. It's never really been true of most architects anyway. Um, if you ask young um, graduates and part twos and part ones about the amount that they earn, they will tell you that they are consciously they're they're of, often um, of the vast majority of them. Let me say not all of them, but the vast majority of them are always thinking about money because they don't have very much of it. And they live in a city that's very expensive and they have to pay rent and they, you know, they, they have all these other commitments and they might want to start a family. They might want to, you know, do all these other things or just pay for their part three course. So money is, is a very kind of present um, thing for quite a few people. But I think the way that architecture talks about it in a parochial sense is as if it was this kind of um, thing that we don't like to talk about. And I think that's a, that's a, that's a conceit I'm not very comfortable with, I suppose. Okay, well, we've talked about architects' engagement with architecture, where, uh, with money rather, sorry, whether it's willful or not. David, you think that's a mis misapprehension. I'm interested as well in the sort of, in the money involved in the production of architecture. You know, traditionally, labour was cheap, materials were expensive. The opposite is kind of true now. And what Im impact the sort of cost of production has on on architecture and what, what impact it will have on architecture going forward, especially after this moment that we've been in at the, right now. Anyone anybody, anybody else want to, I've just spoken, I've got something to say, but I've just- Go just for it. Well, I think um, architects, so this is where I think it, it can be misused. So even money for capitalists, um, like Stone Cold capitalists who are building a an amazing mansion for somebody who's very, very wealthy can do a beautiful job. There's no kind of, I don't think there's any, anything contentious about that. Um, I think if you look at something like Grenfell, um, uh, there is a, many of you won't know this, but before I retrained as an architect, um, I used to be a local authority housing officer. So I'm the only um, registered architect in the country that used to be a local authority um, housing officer. So um, my relationship to Grenfell could have been at any one of three points. It could have been as um, a tenant because I grew up in such buildings and most of the uh, Professor Danny Dorling at Oxford University has uh, estimated that most of the children above the, the live above the fourth floor in England are from a BAME background. Most of the architects who design them don't tend to be. I have been a housing officer who's managed um, a building like Grenfell with a single stair core with a gas pipe down the middle of it, single escape core with a um, gas pipe down the middle of it and fire doors that don't have seals. I have been an architect that has refurbished a, a, a building like that. Now, my understanding of that process, uh, of what happened when, um, uh, after Grenfell was a kind of capture of money of the process a capture of money that made the accountability diffuse, that made um, the ability for anybody to say something, to, to respond to it, to be diffuse, because then you get kind of passed around to, to these um, various people. But when the um, client, who is a local authority, comes to an architect and asks them to design this, they start to use phrases like value for money, which are basically opaque. I mean, I don't really, no one's really clear what that often means, or to be fair, it, it means different things in different contexts. Um, so architects quite often um, it, 
have been complicit in this kind of commodification of, of, of buildings. And I think that's actually what we're talking about. We're not really talking about money or even architecture. We're talking about commodity. An investor wants to invest in, 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 uh, in a kind of um, uh, returning um, commodity. And they do that because they know they can make a lot of money out of, uh, out of um, doing it in, in architecture. So when they speak to us and they say, how can I make that? How can I get even more units into that? They come to us and say, could you build me a mousetrap? We say, yeah, we'll build you, you know, how can we build you a better mousetrap? Not, um, you know, do you really want to build a mousetrap? It's not really great for people, is it? But no, we'll help you build a better mousetrap. That, you know, I, I remember about, and this is why I go back to just pre the financial crash. There are all these conversations often in offices about how we can be, cre how we can creatively use our creative skills to give the client a better outcome by which they meant kind of, make them more money yep. at the expense of people who are going to I'm just to get, I'm going to bring Simon in at that point. Simon, do you help your clients build mouse traps, but nice ones? Oh, you're muted, I'm afraid. I don't think any of us set out to build mouse traps. I think, you know, we start getting to commodity ideas of commodities and land. Um, what we look at are trying to get fundamental design rules into how we build housing that think about the quality of what we can deliver, how it will last well over time, how it can be adapted by people and where we invest. So when we did Adelaide Wharf 10, 12 years ago in Hackney, it was, a, it was an interesting project because it had a complete financial model. We were, we were involved from inception. It had affordable, um, intermediate affordable, it had private and it had socially rented all around one block, around one courtyard with one shared amenity. They were absolutely tenure blind in how they were built and we took technologies of manufacture from office construction to try and invest in delivering um, better accommodation. To contradict David's point, the biggest problem to us isn't how we build it, it's what we're allowed to build on the site. And afterwards Hackney said we could have got two more floors on, um, but they didn't think that at the time. And the cost of the land is a much bigger driver. So we will look at things and think, well, actually, if we, can, if we can build more of quality on a site, then we will release and lower the, the, the cost of the units. Now, if we're doing that in the public sector or the private sector, to me, that's a good thing to do. And actually, it's always about the quality of units. And this kind of bland assumption, again, that somehow if it's, if it's publicly financed, it must have a goodwill campaign behind it. And if it's privately financed, it won't. That was a clever model where, in fact, when the flats were sold, you could only ever buy 90%. That allowed local residents to staircase up. They could only buy 90%. And the, when they sold it, the 10% endlessly went back into the pot to, to build more housing. So that's a very good example of turning the commodity of land and housing into something that offers long-term value to key workers in London over time. Sure. Can I, can I, I mean, I think you've got to think more broadly and I think actually we shouldn't get into this good and this bad money there is bad design there is the, you know, the building of substandard accommodation there our, our aim is to say actually one thing we can't do in most housing projects is add so I would rather build more space we built very large 12 square meter balconies more space for people that they can then adapt and improve over time rather than focusing on finish but there's plenty of irony so the the, the, the social housing had carpets which get ripped out every time the tenancy changes, every two to three years, and they cost, therefore, over time, far more than the timber flooring that had five sandings in that went into the intermediate. So a lot of these absurdities aren't to do with good or bad. They're just to do with 
bad design thinking. And that involves money and that involves use over time. And the, the trap of getting into good and bad is the real problem. It's the quality of accommodation you deliver and how well that pays for itself over time through the delivery of better quality um, happiness to people. Sure. I, um, can I just say, I don't think... I'm gonna, um, sorry, I'm going to interrupt I'm you there for a moment. Sorry, because we have some developers out there in the audience and I'm going to try and bring in some other questions. So I think Roger Zagolovich is out there with a, his hand up and a question for you guys. Roger? I'll try and unmute myself. Yes. Hello. Um, I'm, I'm fascinated by this conversation. Obviously, I've, <clears throat> I'm a slightly different uh, category because I'm an architect and developer. I've had the pleasure of working with Simon over many years. I think we're kind of missing the point of what the, the development industry is. The development industry is an industry not really specifically about actually in a way huge money-making opportunity. It's much more an industry about long-term investment and long-term investment has a, an alignment a direct alignment with actually the quality of architecture you make. And what's particularly fascinating in a way in a post-COVID period is actually what we're gonna see about values. What we miss, or what you have to be careful in terms of understanding money is there's a combination, not between bad and good money, there's a combination between investment and speculation. And speculation exists because the system that we operate in is imperfect. And in an imperfect relationship, opportunities for speculation happen. And I think there's a, in, in, in a post-COVID world, we've just seen the most extraordinary thing happen to the largest sector of property investment, i.e. offices. So in the future, are we going to end up, we've now found that the entire office industry has moved to their homes rather than their offices. Mm. So does that mean that in the future, Land Security is one of the largest uh, public companies, the owners of the great owners of offices, the, virtually the entire of, of Victoria, saw billions of pounds uh, run from their, from their, uh, their value of their, of their shareholding. So are we going to see a kind of completely new model? It's a challenge. Are we going to see values that are going to invert, insert? And I think we must remember that architects are the only imagineers in the business. So we just need to speak a language of investment, a language of money with ease and with simplicity and demonstrate that how we offer good value into that investment marketplace. Thank you. Yes. So how architects offer good value. Um, Julia, you've got your hand up. Yeah, I think just as a reaction to both um, what Simon and, and Roger, Roger, it's been a long time since I've last seen you. I think I was still a student at the AA when I last chatted to you. Um, and I, I, I think, I mean, I, I, I loved what Simon was talking about. And I think, um, but I think it did fall into David's trap of kind of, of, of the sort of challenges of when you're designing better mousetraps. And I think for me, and, and kind of maybe just to sort of frame my, my earlier points is that, um, yeah, as Roger has said it, the system that we operate in um, is, 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 is sort of, is, is not quite right, I think. I can't remember the word you exactly use. And I mean, I would say that the system that we operate with is intrin intrinsically, A, linked to the kind of money that we're talking about. Um, I mean, I've called it bad money. I think everyone university doesn't like that, but I think it's useful. Um, and that that system is intrinsically racialized. Um, 
it's it's intrinsically, um, uh, let's say, to be a reductionist bad. And so in a way for me, I think that we don't need to know about money so we can become necessarily better developers, but we need to know about money so that we can actually think about the production of, of architecture as part of a call to radically think about that, that system in which we're operating. Because the production of the built environment, I'm, I feel very confident in saying, is intrinsically interwoven into an economic system that exacerbates environmental destruction, that exacerbates race relations, that exacerbates gender relations, and you know, I, th I think COVID has completely exposed that and is actually a wonderful opportunity to challenge, challenge it. And it's a call to make places differently and mm. um, ar organize around a whole different set of values. Because I see that the money that's making places today is that money has a value set linked to it. And I think we need new value sets, value sets that are kind of like not about ownership value sets that are about the climate you know what does it really mean to live with 50 percent less fossil fuels i think these are the questions that are sort of we, we must compel ourselves to ask mm. and so i think just to push back a little bit on on uh, and and to really celebrate david's kind of um you know building better mouse traps as a kind of it's just not good enough mm. i think that's that's good that you've highlighted some of those questions there but what do some of those new value sets look like then what does that mean well, in terms of setting up a practice I mean, I don't know where Jack is, but I mean, he talks a lot about kind of what it is to design in a sort of post ownership world. I mean, mm. the, his whole Venice. Be I think he's is he is he, is he Jack I'm is here. still there. Hi. Okay. Probably I mean, I've just been deprecated below <laughs> Roger, I think. But yeah, I mean, in, in a way, that's kind of the conversations that I've enjoyed really enjoyed with you about yeah. how that kind of value set around money is seen as a you know something aspirational as opposed to kind of mm. what um, those who are most marginalised have to do. Yeah. as opposed to sort of a, a new value set, a new economic system, and, yeah. you know, really embracing Piketty. And uh, that's I mean, the kind of, you know, savviness around money that I'm interested in. I'm, I, don't, I don't care if architects just get better, become better developers. Mm. There's loads of really good ones out there already. You know, is, that, is that what we need? I don't think so. Mm. Mm. Okay, yeah, let's Well, not, not to in a way use this uh, uh, as a way of uh, catching up on the time that we've had apart, Julia, uh, but uh, in a way to kind of maybe uh, explore some of those ideas. I mean, maybe to respond directly to the point about office space, one of the big concerns I have in a post-COVID environment is, yes, firstly, those offices, they've been built as such a rigid typology for such a specific market sector that they're almost impossible to adapt to any, any alternative use. You know, they're deep floor plates, very little natural light. We've seen attempts to convert them into housing. It doesn't work. But the other thing is it puts so much pressure and exacerbates the inequalities which are already within uh, uh, housing in Britain today, you know, whether or not you can do your work from, uh, from home and already whether or not you have a home which has uh, got a space which is quiet, which is peaceful, which is able to be used. And in terms of the work that I'm doing right now, I mean, I've spent the last five years working on a business model in order to execute low cost housing, which is post typological. So I, I mean, to come back to kind of a point that Simon made earlier about um, how we, we design buildings for future economic models which haven't already existed. Part of that for me is rejecting the idea that we have uh, certain categories of zoning um, and that we start to think of buildings as having that. And I mean, the best example I think is the way in which 
uh, 19th century industrial buildings, which are not designed for any particular human activity whatsoever, have been infinitely adaptable, or terrace housing, which has been, uh, you know, designed around particular qualities of light and generic proportions of space, become infinitely adaptable through time. So that's very much, I think, the types of things that I'm interested in. I mean, I could go into it in more detail, but that's that's the direction. In terms of some of the concrete things that we can look at, you know, I'm looking at models of collective ownership which um, have existed in parts of Europe for many, many years and which can only now just be brought into the UK. I'm looking at models of incremental ownership so that uh, we start out with a developer-led pro project which over time becomes a cooperative through uh, building up uh, basically rent to buy. I mean, there's, there's so many, if you think of the many uh, ways that architects create formal solutions to um, a project and a site and how we you know, put uh, different designs on it, there are a million other ways that we could be thinking about models of ownership, models of occupation, families, types, family structures, gender relations. And these are all design tools which, which include different financial models as well. Because ultimately, and I want to come back to David's point on this, ultimately, money is just an instrument of power. And we need to, you know, let's not ignore the fact that we're at a moment now of what I hope will be one of the definitive uh, civil rights struggle of this century in order to overturn uh, so many of the systemic injustices which uh, have perpetuated these systems we're talking about. And I really hope we can seize, uh, seize control of, of uh, this opportunity to, to really use money as an instrument, be creative and imaginative about the models we use, but in the service of social goals, which is about rebalancing power within our society thank you okay well i'm gonna i'm gonna go to some questions there's one that's popped up here from tom bennett which kind of follows from what you were saying he has said that uh can architects play a role in building alternatives that deal with some of the issues we face like climate change and inequality which we've just talked about uh, but he's also said, how can we wean architecture off capitalism? Do we need to? Those alternative uh, models that you were talking about, Jack, are they, are they in opposition to capitalism or are they, you know, work within the system? Uh, well, this comes back to Julia's point about Trojan horses. They're very high risk strategies. And um, at least for me, you know, the entire business model of my foundation is incredibly precarious because it's constantly trying to disentangle itself from the ways in which capitalism work, which exploits uh, architectural labor. And, you know, we don't have unpaid intern. In fact, we don't have internships full stop because I just can't justify it financially, which means that, you know, uh, we're under very difficult uh, constraints over what we can do. It's taken a lot longer to, to build up a practice that's able to execute the types of projects that we want than it would if we were prepared to follow a Bjork Ingels model of a hundred unpaid interns, you know, churning out competition entries every week. Uh, so it's, it's difficult and weaning architecture of capitalism is not really, that's like a subcategory. It's like, how do we wean the entire uh, nation state and global economy of capitalism? But then in that sense, I think we should also be specific about the type of capitalism we're talking about. And this comes to Roger's point, which is ultimately we're talking about speculative capitalism and financialization. And particularly the thing that concerns me is financialization of the individual and financialization of the domestic sphere. Um, and they're, you know, the two biggest points. Well, anyway, I won't hog the, hog the discussion. Maybe that throws some ideas out there for other people. Uh, David, we haven't heard from you for a little bit. Yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to um, catch up on all the, the um, interesting things that have been said. I suppose a, a reflection um, that captures a, a, a lot of it is that, um, 
to go back to one of um, Simon's earlier points is that yes, responsible um, and, and Roger's point is that responsible architects and responsible designers do absolutely that. They do what both of the uh, uh, the uh, both of them have um, described. Um, and one of the ways in which I would kind of um, the bucket that I would put that in is redistribution. Um, I think one of the things I'm interested in when I talk about kind of bureaucratic uh, money power is to acknowledge that the, the reality of that. I have always in my entire life um, lived in a capitalist society. Um, I might fantasize about what it might be without that, but um, I have decisions to make tomorrow that I need to kind of respond to. That's just the reality. Um, so a lot of the, the discussions we're having about how you redistribute everything, for instance, um, Adelaide, Adelaide Wharf, I also worked with the developer um, that um, Simon worked with there after, uh, after that, and I know that they were not just well-meaning, well-intentioned, responsible, you know, they had all, all the best values um, that you could hope for, quite often better than some um, departments uh, of uh, local authorities that are trying to procure these things, not not necessarily because those people are bad in the local authorities, but because they have different constraints and um, priorities. Um, so quite often there, there's a way in which um, that that relationship to money can be be put to better use depending on the will and the intention um, that's behind it. But I think the the, red, the redistributive power of, of the money that we do have is something I'd like to focus on and I'd like to get everybody else's view on because councils also use cross-subsidy cross models, it's not just developers, but develop, good developers try and use it, people try and get good architects and good designers try and get the benefit out of something, good product designers try and make, you know, get the best um, use out of a product, but they just kind of look at it in, in, in one dimension. So I think that um, all of those things are true at once and it's as simple and as complex as that. Thank you. Um, I also want to just take a little bit of a left turn and, and focus on one of the things that Roger brought up, which was to do with um, what kind of architecture is being built at the moment. So obviously there is a lot of office space and and even within that recently, uh, you know, we'd seen the sort of, uh, eruption of kind of co-working spaces. Well, now with COVID, obviously that is going to be completely different. And those co-working spaces mm -hmm. will be work being one of the biggest uh, owners of office space. and uh, having that power to um, determine the uses that are present in cities, that's obviously going to change. So I just wonder if anyone has anything to say about that. So just, just really quickly, I know I've just spoken, I'm, I'm very sorry to kind of, but it, it, it is really interesting, um, this kind of redistributive um, framework that we're talking about, because what happens with office space is that when there's a surfeit of office space, what you, you get is that they're then redesigned or reused for, um, for things uh, as we've all seen recently with permitted development. Um, so you, you get people, you, you get them redesigned for housing, um, housing space that they weren't built for, that they weren't designed for in the first place. And that's about kind of when speculation captures this kind of intention, the good intention or the kind of even benign intention of an, an initial process and makes it something completely different. So possibly speculation is that like, that is the devil in some, in some senses. Although I have to say, I think, um, I mean, what, what Jack was referring to are, are kind of, I think, very familiar models of mm. finance. And, you know, I, I happen to live in a capitalist world. You know, I have a practice that happens to become an employee ownership trust. There's all different forms of capitalism. There's different attitudes. Sure. Yeah. We became an employee ownership trust not because we're nice people, but we thought it was actually a more interesting way of engaging, making architecture. 
Mm. We have a slogan that we make money to make architecture. We don't make architecture to make money. Mm. And we are interested in what architecture can do as a tool. Um, I think it's, it's, it's fairly obvious that we can't build buildings that are limited by typological models. And cities shouldn't be planned on use class orders, which always mm. lag about five years behind where we are now. Mm. Equally so, we will always have some form of regulation. Otherwise, you know, mouse boxes will become mouse traps and the world will get... So we're always dancing between... I don't believe in, in the London guidelines on, on housing. I actually think a 2.4 metre wide bedroom that's 4.8 metres deep but is illegal is better than a 3.6 metre bedroom that you have a useless bit of space all the way around the bed, but it's not allowed. So regulation always lags behind good design and it always lags behind society and change. So I, I, I don't believe there's much value in the use class orders. And I certainly think any good designer should be thinking about the long-term flexibility of a building yeah. to adapt to other uses. Mm. I certainly think with offices, that's absolutely fundamental. Every office we mm. do, we're looking at natural ventilation and its conversion potential. Yeah. And actually good buildings with good bones, good frames, um, good public space through them, the circulation by which you move, and access to light and windows can normally be adapted for other uses because they also have something else that architects provide, which is something memorable that people want to keep. So highly adaptable system-built housing may not be very much loved by the public because they, they regard it as a mouse trap, even if it's quite generous Parker Morris. Idiosyncratic, um, you know, Edwardian terrace housing, they, you know, they, they have a cultural affinity with built up over time. So there's, there's, there's a sort of aesthetic and um, cultural association value in architecture that's incredibly important too. That's incredibly important. I also think Edwardian and Victorian architecture has also proved to be incredibly um, adaptable. The point it wasn't about designed by architects normally. Right, yeah, but the point about regulation, I guess all I would say about that is to do with um, the expansion of PD rights and what's, what that has resulted in. But I digress because I know that Stephen has got a question that he wants to pose to the panel. So yeah, just... yeah, it, oh, thanks, Arthur. It, it, it really, wa I want to pick up on the co-working thing that was raised, but also the regulation issue that, that, that Simon raised, because I, I kind of think they are connected in some ways. And also maybe to a point that Roger was um, alluding to, and that is that having recently been dealing with a lot of people who are either co-working providers or suppliers or dealt with planners who are dealing with applications to do with co-working use or dealing with and meeting people who work in co-working space, the co-working model is a phenomenon, uh, is a trend and, 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 and people are making good use of it because as a lot of developers say, is bums on seats. And if you can prove that in a priority employment area, you're providing more work and more employment, then you know the council and the council members back up um, this use of um, co-working, even though it's officially B1 office use, employment use. Some councils, um, and maybe you know David or Alpa might have a point of view on this, are wanting to encourage more affordable workspaces. And there's a lot of workspace providers out there who can do that and they're finding really interesting new ways but sometimes the regulation brings them down and i think simon is right i think right regulation tends to lag behind the use classes and how how development how architects deal with those 
those aspects. But just going that, going back to that co-working issue. During COVID, the market is blighted. Obviously, there's a lot of people who um, haven't been able to 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 follow up their 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 rents and what they paid for a co-working space. We work, as we know, and a lot of people know, have expanded and and um, you know maybe done um, too many sites. Um, there's a lot of boutique places out there. There's a lot of um, uh, very specific, very design-led providers of co-working, which I think um, can offer new models of, of use and, and, and employment. And, and, and it's that kind of model that you might want to ask someone like Julia if there is um, any historical precedent for a new form of architecture, a new role of architects in, in today's capitalist, very capitalistic society, where um, new models can, um, can be born out of um, uh, new forms of working and living. Well, I think you've just been asked a direct question there, Julia. <laughs> I, I'll, sort of, I'll sort of respond, it, uh, respond to it. And I think, um, yeah, Simon, you're completely right that regulation lags behind um, good design. Um, and I actually think that we can push that even further. I think it's getting the problem entirely wrong. Um, I, th I think David referred to Danny Dorling. I think you did. Um, and, you know, Danny Dorling's research t tells us quite clearly. I mean, I'll, I'll be curious to see when the next census comes out. So my comment might be out of date. But he clearly says that it's not actually a space issue at all. It's an, it's a, it's an inequality issue. You know, London has more bedrooms than people. So it's not the number of bedrooms that's the problem, it's the distribution of those bedrooms that's the problem. And that's, I guess, if I'm saying one thing over and over again in this conversation is that that's the kind of economic literacy mm. or money literacy that I'm interested in architects having yeah. is in reframing the problem so that we can be part of the right solutions to the right questions. And, and so, yes, that's in a way how we can then be bastions of new models, which, you know, are slowly are emerging and, and I think... Um, I, haven't, I haven't prepped for that answer, but I think, yeah, I've kind of foregrounded uh, a point that kind of attends to Stephen's question. Uh, Jack has his hand up, and he was giving you a thumbs up too, by the way. Uh, yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And in some ways we're describing um, conditions as they existed before the lockdown. And in some ways we should also be thinking about what the, you know, if I were just to talk in economic terms, the two trends that I see at the moment, one is anyone who can leave urban centers is planning to do so, probably not permanently. And I think not to sound like, not to always be playing the like one hit wonder, but we, we don't talk enough about the role of time in occupancy within uh, these conditions. So what Simon was saying about, um, you know, designing for future ad adaptable use, you know, why, why do we not have regulations? If we had regulations which specified that the minimum period of time that a residential building was to be used was 100 years, it would radically change the way in which we thought about things. You know, I asked my students this year to design a dwelling that could last a 1000 years. So you know, there's only really two ways I think you can do that make a rock which does nothing is totally inert or make a kind of is a shrine constant uh, kind of cultural uh, system which which renovates itself or rejuvenates itself but in any case you know i'm seeing a huge number of people who want to leave the city if they can but they want to return to the city for specific reasons to be together for a short period of the time they're thinking two three months of the year maximum they're thinking weekends if they can get far enough 
uh, close enough to the city centers. That's going to have a huge impact on, on price. And then, of course, you know, huge impact, economic impact from COVID looks like we're headed for a hard Brexit. Britain is probably, and London specifically, is about to become probably the saddest city in Europe. And that's going to do a huge amount to, um, I mean, there's many other issues that we could get into there, but just talking specifically about architecture, uh, money and power, we'll see the value of land depreciate significantly. We'll see uh, a surplus of the wrong types of units in the wrong locations for the wrong people. And that's going to equate to some sort of quite radical rebalancing of the housing markets in, in London, which are all so delicately intertwined with each other. So, I mean, the, the, the co-working question, it's like, uh, I, I, I cannot see how um, the vast supply of co co-working is, is going to be viable in even six months time. And uh, anyway, that's a slight side point, but yeah. Co-working is just a speculation on space. None, no co-worker delivers anything. They just create an intermediate market. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a sort of, it's, it's a, it's a, in, in this, in this, this, the radical worlds that we're talking about, all co-working is, is a kind of intermediate transaction. Because they don't build buildings, mm -hmm. they take buildings, they rent them off someone else and they add a value to them. Or in mm -hmm. the case of WeWorks, they create a kind of Ponzi scheme, mm -hmm. um, which, which markets, you know, like, just like Deliveroo or Twitter, that one day they'll somehow dominate the world or Uber, which they never do. So co-working has not actually changed um, anything. All it did is, was, was take up a surplus with an intermediate market. Mm. So co-living is the same thing, unless they're building, which most of them aren't. They're taking space and creating a different kind of value, like student housing. It's just, you know, a, a, another financial model. It's not actually, it's not a architectural or urban speculation. It's yeah, a pure si financial speculation. Simon, I'm going to butt in there. Um, what would you say about the co-working providers who provide spaces for people who make stuff my point is I'm, there it's coming back to the good and bad um idea people create different models of um economic space so there's railway arches which used to be for a sort of you know let's call it a, a more manual kind of labor now have become a kind of coffee society labor or bike shops as a sort of intermediate point my, my simple point was about the design of the environment. You know, there are speculators taking buildings as assets and changing their value through a, a model. So my point is co-working, I don't think has a big impact on the city. It might have an impact on an idea about rents. And in fact, co-working is simply giving new businesses the chance to grow at normally extraordinarily high rents. That's how they work. They take rent at 40 pounds and charge people 80 pounds, but they package it up in a certain way that gives people flexibility. So what they deal with is a lack of um, proven accounts and uh, you know, a desire to have, they fill a market which is to, for new businesses to grow rapidly and not be tied into old fashioned institutional leases. In that sense, they're a disruptor because now traditional leases are changing and landlords are forming partnerships with their tenants and they're forming a different attitude to them. So, I mean, my point is simply that that, that is, that's a kind of manipulator of an asset rather than the creation of an asset. I think so co-working and co-living, they also uh, link back to this idea of um, designing for time, um, for a period in time. They're, they're both very kind of instant. They only kind of work for a very short amount of time. So, you know, a person living in a co-living 
uh, apartment complex based on the ones that I've seen, you, you know, you can't live there over a long period of time. It's just a very short instant sort of time frame. So I think that's interesting because it kind of links back to what Jack was talking about designing for long periods of time. But I also want to talk because Satwinder said something in the chat box about suburbia. And I want to come back to sort of land price and land value. And the idea that now with COVID, you know, people are working from home. Uh, actually, the people that are in the centre of town are key workers and delivery drivers and so on. And whether there might be a kind of redistribution of where people are, and that might affect land value, if that's anything that anyone would be interested yeah, in. Yeah, absolutely. I was, it was the point I was going to make. So thank you for somebody um, raising that. I, I mean, I, it's this interesting thing about in, incentives. I mean, just fundamentally, I, I just got to share that there is a, um, everybody's aware that there's a fundamental um, housing, affordable housing shortage in London, but there's also a fundamental affordable workspace shortage in London. I think London needs something like 46,000 workspaces um, a year just to keep up with demand. To be fair, that was probably before, just before Brexit, um, that those figures came out, but it's something, you know, it's, it's a very large order, is the point I'm trying to make. And, and it is interesting, this idea that, um, yeah, you can redistribute space as well as um, money. And we are talking about densifying the outer ring of London. We're talking about kind of other areas of London that we're trying to create some kind of um, centrality and focus to. Um, I don't see a problem with um, some of those places. I mean, I, I love the idea of people living in the centre of London and commuting to the outskirts of London to work, for instance, to Old Oak, uh, Old Oak Common or, or places like that to kind of to, to the periphery. There are models of cities all around the world where this is more or less what happens, possibly even in the UK. Um, but I'm also interested in, in other activities. I, I, I describe myself as a kind of confirmed urbanist, by which I mean anything that goes into the making of a city, a kind of convivial space, a, a place to live, a place to work, I'm interested in. I would love the idea of kind of, you know, in, a, in an age where um, arts um, bodies are under, going to be under immense pressure um, to just survive after COVID, there are going to be all these, you know, spaces that they can occupy on a temporary basis all around. Um, London and I think it's almost a kind of forced perspective to imagine that there is only kind of a specific part of London where some of these things can happen I think there's there's a massive opportunity and creativity and we are the kind of you know we we're the governing intelligence of how that happens we're the ones who should be proposing it and should be talking about it uh, in Harrow um, Alpa or anywhere else and kind of you know all these opportunities are out there can I just add one thing about offices is that from our experience actually the, the immediate impact of covid is you need more space and we can't occupy buildings at the density we were occupying them so there is a, a kind of reverse theory that there won't be any space around except rather tragically where businesses have disappeared because any operational business needs more space than it had because we were probably operating everyone at too great a density we used to talk about buildings being occupied at one in 12 one in 10 now they're designed at one in six for fire, one in eight for M&E. So it's a reset. COVID is, will, to me will be a reset of the density by which we occupy space. Um, it won't affect housing density, in my opinion, because there's adequate space. You know, it may be, going back to that comment, there may be problems with housing standards, but there's adequate space technically in a house. There is not adequate space in most offices or schools. Those are the areas that struggle. They can't comply with COVID standards. So the density of an inner city London school where my kids go to, the playground on the roof, means they're allowed back for two hours a week. Yeah, I think the point about resets is a, is a really good one. I mean, you, 
you'll all be aware that lots of town halls across London and across the country have been uh, recently re redeveloped because they're all kind of, sort of coming to the end of their life, having been built in the 60s and so on. And when they've been rebuilt, they're sort of four person to a desk, that kind of capacity. And now, obviously, all of that is out of the window. At Walden Forest, for example, we are now 40% capacity in our existing building. So that point about a reset is, is, a, is a really good one. In terms of housing, I think the important thing is that we are all going to need more outdoor space and hopefully that's something that um, gets translated uh, into housing design because that is an area that is definitely uh, shaved off as much as possible, whether that can be possible with the availability of land. But then having said that again with the redistribution and, you know, will people be willing to live close to, you know, live in the city if they have to commute across town? Maybe not. They don't need to do that anymore. And more generous common areas, by the way. Um, I urgently want to um, say something about the density debate because I've seen a lot of architects talking about it and sort of forecasting sort of the, the, the end of urbanization, which I think is, is um, you know, real distraction because it's not density that's the problem, it's overcrowding. Um, and there, you know, density and overcrowding is not the same thing. And to, sorry, my, my cat is walking in front of, uh, and, you know, overcrowding is the result of inequality and the distributive housing crisis that we have which is the crisis is the system working very well for um, the people in power. And so, um, you know, I think it's very important that as urbanists, as people who are at the center of city making, that we don't perpetuate this kind of density myth um, because it's a real distraction. It's a real distraction about the inequality story that's at play. And, you know, for me, COVID has just exposed, um, not that the typology of density is bad, but the kind of um, the hyper financialization of housing um, has resulted in overcrowding for certain communities who also don't have the pr privilege of being able to furlough or work from home like I do. Um, that's my. Thank you, Juliet. Well, I've got a question from Stephen Archer, I think, and I'm going to try and get him to be spotlighted, which I think we can do. Can we do that? Hello. <laughs> You had a question about landowners, I believe. Uh, I, I thought I thought the uh, a lot of this discussion was just simply dancing across the the key issue here, which is who, who owns the land. You know, we're we're blithely talking about uh, different models, repurposing. You know, whether or not it's cool to repurpose uh, an 18th century warehouse which was never built for housing into cool housing but we somehow can't do it with uh, a modern office block. It, 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 who owns the land? Who actually holds the asset that enables us as architects to apply our, um, our nefarious magic? Um, I read something quite recently for the, the first time since, I think it was the 18th century that Asset growth has now outstripped um, investment slash inflationary growth. So therefore, that's why salaries are no longer, you know, uh, you, you put money in an account, it doesn't earn anything, but you put money into uh, a physical asset growth. So I, I think we're, we're, we're missing a big, a massive point here. Um, and I think Jack's, Jack, the point that Jack made about um, developments, which are, if I read it, or heard them correctly, um, are speculative 
or, or developer-led, let's say, and the tenants have the ability to accumulate a capital pot to eventually buy it. I, I haven't come across that before, and I thought, wow, what a great idea. What a great thing. But why aren't we talking about the land? If you can't okay. buy it, you can't do anything. Who owns the land? I mean, it's a good question. I just want to add to that, that obviously local authorities own a lot of the land, which is why they've gone full steam ahead on a lot of estate regeneration programmes as a way of repurposing that land. But um, does anyone have anything to say to that question of who owns yeah, Maybe I could just pick up on that. I mean, in terms of maybe coming back to that question about, you know, it's a very broad statement to wean architectural, to wean society off capitalist uh, relation. I mean, we're talking about capital capitalist money relations but you're absolutely right we're actually talking about capitalist property relations and land relations that's the kind of core issue where money and, and power intersect with each other um, the model that i was talking about is basically a model which tries to look at how we can create that transition between the existing structures and new models and what i'm interested in is creating property in which the land has zero value and actually a lot of local authorities are already effectively in that position but since I'm not a local authority, the model that I'm working on is raising private finance in order to construct housing. And then you move into it and you start paying your rent. And after you've been there for a couple of months, first of all, I'm interested in the idea of rolling annual contracts, which give people rent security. The second is I'm interested in rent caps to make sure that the rent is not speculative, that it's, it's fixed, it's rent controlled. And then um, the third element that we're trying to implement in a, in a project that hopefully will we'll start to get off the ground at the end of this year, COVID, you know, not wood, um, is then looking at models of incremental ownership. So you, as I said, you, you move in and after a couple of months, you can start to put a little bit of money each month towards effectively a forced savings account. And that pays a dividend, which is t attached to uh, the rent and what you're actually doing is buying out the original developer which is me and my company so that at the end of the 25 year period 50% of the building is owned by the developer i.e. me which is the operating company and 50% is owned as in cooperative by the people who uh, own it Jack, and the, Jack, the eventual model is to try to push that to 100% and create cooperatives out of private development. But Jack that's a familiar model yeah, it's nothing new. It's nothing, nothing new. It's a model. It's a, it's a well-established um, housing association model, with a lot of other people who've worked around it. The, the the problem with that model is, is your your zero land value means in, in what well, until you nationalise land, you can't get hold of any, mm. because you're competing in a market where land has a value. So I mean, yeah. this is the this is the this is the kind of dilemma of the we need architecture or revolution. Um, if you're working in the system, which most of us are, you, it's actually rather difficult to buy a plot of land and say, I've got a model which has zero value because you'll get zero interest in your prospective offer. Sorry, to, to, to be clear there, the value to the person who's lending you the money, and this depends on the type of capitalist that you're borrowing money from or how you raise your capital. If you're interested in uh, passive income, so a rental return, rather than a capital appreciation which is that speculative value what you're saying to or what i've been saying to these investors is you'll get 20 25 years of rental return and if you look at that you'll get your initial sum back plus about five to six percent per year in your dividend right but effectively we're slowly buying you out because the shares in that other half which the uh you know the, the payment back of that initial capital is coming from the people who are in the building paying rent and effectively renting to buy 
in, in the sense that there's no deposit that's required for them. And at the end of it, I think this is also quite a key point. At the end of it, you don't own, let's say it's a building of 100 apartments, you don't own your apartment. You own 1% of, or well, half a percent of the building. And that, I think, is, is also really important for questions of collective ownership. But of course, once you've established a model like that, when I say it has zero uh, market value, at the conclusion of that model, it can't really be resold because it's a cooperative, which means that if you can't resell the land uh, unless everyone agrees to redevelop it, then it has no market value because it only has a market value at the point that it can be resold. And, and that's, in a way, uh, uh, I'm interested in how one can remove pieces of land, ideally in a large scale, from, from the existing property markets. But hey, come back in 10 years and see if I've been successful. I, I don't know. Some days I'm not sure. Um, if I can come in there. I think Alpha, you know, Jack, you, you talked to me, asked me at the beginning about, you know, operating within the system without. And I think mm. um, I, I've always tended to sort of think about that Trojan horse. Um, but I like Simon, Simon's provocation about revolution or, you know, I, can't, I don't know the other word. I can't remember the other word to use. Revolutionary like, architecture. Architectural revolution. And we I took kind of, architecture, as most architects have tended to do, I'm afraid. And I, I mm. kind of feel like right now we are at this sort of point of going, fuck it, revolution. Um, and I think in that, but, but carrying on the, in the sort of perhaps more useful spirit of Trojan horse design, you know, the work that Neff do and let's say Laurie McFarlane, um, you know, one of the things that he really talks about is um, economic rent. So currently now economic rent, and by that I mean the gain, the, the gain of um, the economic uplift of property is currently privatized. So for example, I bought a house in, in Leytonstone 20 years ago, I would have made 900,000 pounds, not because of my own good work, but because of just sort of wider investments by the state, by the private sector and so on. And what he talks a lot about is how can we socialize economic rent? And I think these are really for me, and again, when I talk about the kind of economic literacy that I'm interested in, in seeing um, young architects have, that's, that's what I'm interested in. Um, and that is, you know, Stephen, a, a sort of question to you of how we think about land. And because I think for, for me, the, my problem with capitalism can be summed up in that currently I feel our system is the capitalist system that we operate in gains are privatized and risks are socialized. And I don't get why that just pisses me off so much. And you see it over and over and over again. And I think there must be a way that we don't have that we don't need to resort to revolution to fix what is just such an absurd situation. Um, and I guess that would be my kind of, um, and I'm interested in architects being part of that and the economic literacy that you need to, to be, to, to have to be part of that. But so I'm interested in, is it, is that not, a, uh, and I suppose I'm floating it to, to everyone, is that not a kind of wider societal issue? So Elizabeth yeah. Denby said in the, um, in, in the interwar years in the twenties um, about, she, I mean, she pointed out how in the UK, um, the state pays more um, as a percentage of um, private developments than um, the private developer themselves in the UK. And 90, almost 100, well, almost 100 years later, it's exactly the same. So isn't there a kind of fundamental cultural, um, I don't know, almost kind of masochism of these things? And I, I kind of, I just wanted to, to pull up a point that Jack made earlier about um, about kind of aspiration. So really, really interestingly, at the end of the calendar, uh, people understand about right to buy um, and, and kind of leaseholders on, on councils' estates, and they think of it as a, uh, as a kind of consequence of Thatcherism. That was actually initially instituted as a pilot study under the previous um, Callaghan government, just before um, Thatcher. And 
and it's one of, one of my kind of feelings about all the all these moments and revolution and um, what Jack was saying about kind of a, a more kind of profound change in the way that we look at things is that oft, often I feel like there's a kind of enabling by the broader society of um, kind of kind of consent um, and complicity that's that's awarded to developers because this is almost how we see things. So is mm. there a way? Is there a model in which we can do what Jack is saying, but take you know being realistic, I suppose, about how people really behave when no one's looking? Mm. I, I think we're. I mean, oh, yeah, I'm just going to interrupt you. Oh, just I'm sorry. To answer that point uh, and refer to cultural masochism, just to remind everyone that we have about ten minutes left. So if anyone out there has any questions for uh, the panel, please do put them into the chat box. So yeah, sorry to interrupt, Jack. Not at all. No, I completely agree with uh, with David's point. And I think, you know, in terms of revolution, the, I, I believe we are going through a revolution. Extinction Rebellion, Black Lives Matter. I'm starting to see, you know, we're seeing statues being pulled over and tipped into the, into the water. And maybe that's just a symbolic thing. I really hope that it will carry forward into really structural change in our society. And that I think comes right back to Julia's point right at the beginning about financial literacy, which is the more aware people are of how these particular systems uh, operate, the more they're able to get involved in their, in their revolution. And I think that actually the, the future of our society doesn't depend on architecture. It, it, de it depends on those cult cultural revolutions and cultural uh, change. What can we do as architects to accelerate that? Well, part of that is the discussion we're having here tonight with this audience uh, to, to explore these issues and to explore the role of the architect. Um, uh, the, the only question I would have about architecture and revolution is also like what constitutes revolution within the time frame of architecture? You know, if we can radically change our models of housing, our models of urban occupation in a 10-year period, that would be a revolution to me because architecture is so slow. If we can do it even in a 25 year period, that already is, is for me a very radical uh, shift. So I don't know if we should put so much, I don't want to like excuse the architect in any sense, but of course it's not up to us to make these, uh, it's up to us as citizens, it's not up to us as, as architects to, to advocate and push for this change and to do what we can within our own practice in the knowledge that it will take a long time for architecture to catch up behind a lot of these, uh, uh, these movements, I think. Anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to hold the floor there. Well, I think that was a good uh, call to arms. And since we are getting towards the end, I mean, I think it would be good if you could all give a kind of rounding up uh, sentence, short paragraph or something, just to kind of formalise what you've been talking about and give your last sentiments. Uh, I'll just say, uh, just to echo what Jack says, we're all citizens and that's, what we that's how, how we should think about this. Thank you, Julia. Um, yeah, I, 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 I like what David and Jack have said. I think, um, yeah, we, we've come to this point. Uh, 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 maybe, sorry, I'm, I'm not, I'm rambling. Uh, I, I want to recall David's comment about redistribution um, and just that if we can uh, leave this, this conversation with a sort of a call to arms around redistribution a redistributive project to redress large-scale systemic inequalities and just to kind of round it off on a slightly different call whilst i've enjoyed the conversation i think there is um, a real danger when architects um, forget some of their core skills and get involved in things that they're not actually designed or equipped to do and they think they're the revolutionaries transforming society then they end up delivering exactly the kind of 
um, environments that, that people don't want to do want to inhabit. So um, you know they might then create another revolution, which might be the one you're seeing of, of disaffected people. But that might be to do with the aspirations of, of architects forgetting one of the core things that we are perhaps good at is working to build um, positive environments out of many different kinds of financial models you know, that, that exist. Um, and we shouldn't forget the import of that role. Now that might stay the revolution that some might want, but m my concern is that, that I think that's actually probably the, the unique core skill we have to contribute. Thank you. Well, I think that's a good place to end it. So we have a call to arms and also a note of caution and a sense of belief in our abilities, I think. So uh, I just want to tell everyone that you can all stay on the call because people will be present and you can all talk amongst yourselves as well with the audience too. So if you would like to stay on the call, you're welcome to do that. And it just leaves me to say thank you very much to our speakers who have been really brilliant and engaging and brought lots of different strands to this huge topic to the table. So thank you very much. It's a shame we can't all clap. It would be very sad to clap on our own. <laughs> thank you all very much. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.fourthspace.co.uk where you can see all our past and upcoming events or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.fourthspace.co.uk